Good morning. My name's Russ Allen. I'm the student ministries pastor here at West Shore. And it's always good to be able to share God's word with you. Before we get into our text this morning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been around a kid who refuses to eat the food that is put in front of them? Anybody been there? I have a toddler right now, and so I've been thinking about this a lot recently. And my wife actually tells a story from when she was a kid, and she refused to eat the food that was put in front of her. And like all good parents, her dad made her sit there until she tried it, right? And so she continued to refuse, and she sat at the dinner table for over an hour while the rest of her family was up doing whatever they wanted to do, and she refused to even try the food on her plate. The twist is that the food on her plate was apple crisp, which turned out to be her favorite dessert. It's now her go-to dessert. But in her stubbornness, in her stubbornness, she was missing out on something that actually would have provided her a lot, of, a lot of joy. And this is kind of a silly example, but I, I tell this because we're gonna see something very similar in the text that we're going to read this morning. We're gonna see that the, the stubbornness and the hardness of heart of the Pharisees who reject Jesus actually causes them to miss out on the one who is life and goodness itself. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three, verses one through six. It says this, again, he, meaning Jesus, entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That's the Pharisees that are watching him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So our main point for this morning is that Jesus' work reveals hearts. Jesus' work reveals hearts, reveals man's heart, and reveals God's heart. Would you pray with me again before we get into the text? Father, we thank you for your word that is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Pray that it would pierce to our hearts this morning. Lord, be with me. Help me to just accurately convey what you are saying to our people this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So in the book of Mark, which we're going through in this series, we are introduced to Jesus right away as a miracle worker. 
Right in the first chapter, we read that Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit, and then he goes on to heal many other people, including Peter's mother-in-law and a man with leprosy. At the beginning of chapter two, Jesus heals a paralytic, which Trent talked about last week. And through these miracles, you can imagine that Jesus is gaining quite a lot of attention. In fact, Mark tells us that Jesus can't even go into a town because of all the crowds. People are flocking to see him. We need to realize that Jesus garnering attention for miracles isn't just a cute story or an idea from scripture. It's one of the surest facts of history surrounding Jesus' life. Even non-Christian secular historians must admit that at the very least, Jesus is doing some incredible things. A man named Josephus, writing a history of the Jewish people in 93 AD, which is within the lifetime of those who would have been witnessing some of these events, this is what he says. He says, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. So Jesus' works are gaining him attention. And along with this attention comes conflict. The healing of the paralytic in chapter two is the beginning of five conflict episodes that culminate with the Pharisees in our passage for this morning in Mark chapter three, verses one through six. So we need to ask ourselves, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a group of Jewish religious elites. They were scholars of Old Testament law, people whose primary concern was to make sure that the Jewish nation stayed pure. They revolved their life around what God says through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And you can actually go ahead and turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 30 this is in the Old Testament, one of the first books in the Old Testament. And keep a marker there because we're also going to be coming back to this later on as well. So Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 16 through 18. This is, this is the passage that the Pharisees sort of revolved their life around. It says this, If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commands and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish." So the Pharisees know from these words that if Israel disobeyed God's commands, God's law, then they would all perish. And so how can the Pharisees prevent this from happening? This is their life's work. The answer is by making sure all Jewish people are strict adherents to the law. 
There's no room for error. This is why the Pharisees created additional laws for the people to abide by. God said, do not work on the Sabbath. The Pharisees said, you must not even help people on the Sabbath. In fact, the only time any work was acceptable was if it was a strict matter of life and death. God's law provided guardrails. The Pharisees' law put the people in chains. This is why the Pharisees are outraged that Jesus would have the audacity to heal a man who merely has a withered hand on the Sabbath. To them, giving an inch is the same as tipping over the rails. It wouldn't happen under their watch. But there's something about Jesus' work here that reveals a much deeper issue. See, it's not just their theology that's flawed. It's their hearts. In fact, their hearts are every bit as flawed and withered as the man's hand that stretched out in front of them. What we learn very quickly from reading this passage in Mark is that the Pharisees have hard hearts. We see this explicitly in verse 5 because it says Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart. We also see this implicitly as well in verse 2. Notice how it says the Pharisees watched Jesus so they might accuse him. See, these men are not unbiased, open-minded people. They've already set their hearts against him. So much so that even a miracle doesn't change their minds. Another thing we learn is that the Pharisees are not as concerned with pure devotion to God as they claim. Look at verse 6. Not only do the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus, but they plot to do it on the Sabbath. And what was the one thing Pharisees believed people could do on the Sabbath? Save life. And yet here they are plotting to kill. It's the epitome of hypocrisy. But it's even worse than that. The Pharisees plot with the Herodians to kill Jesus. As one scholar notes, the Herodians were a secular political party which took its name from Herod Antipas and was strong in its support for Rome, opposed the Pharisees on nearly every issue, but were willing to join forces with them because both desperately wanted to destroy Jesus. So much for religious purity. Now we need to ask ourselves, why could this be? Why are the Pharisees' hearts so hard? What's at the root of this? What is Jesus exposing here? See, their hearts are hard because they have a distorted or withered heart for God's authority. It's interesting that in Luke 6, verse 6, which is actually a parallel account of this story, 
Luke specifically mentions that it was the man's right hand that was withered. Why does he mention that? For one, obviously, because it was actually the man's right hand that was withered. But let me also propose that it's because there's significance in the right hand. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my right hand. Exodus 15.6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm 118.15-16, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. See, the right hand represents authority. And it's exactly this that the Pharisees have distorted. Jesus is threatening their sense of authority. And in doing so, he's revealing their hearts. So what do you do when Jesus threatens your sense of authority? See, Phariseeism, if I can call it that, is a disease of the heart that we all have. It's a desire for you to set the rules of life. Do you see that in your own heart? As kids, we refuse to eat our apple crisp. As teens, we can't wait to leave the house to be on our own and do what we want to do. As adults, we idealize getting a job where we can set our own hours and our own schedule and not be at the bidding of someone who is higher than us. We want to set the rules for ourselves, be they soft or strict, as long as they make us the authority and make us feel proud. My mom told me a story a few years ago of a coworker that she invited to church. And this coworker was not religious. She was open to going to church, but she had never read the Bible, never been in church before. What's funny about this story is that this woman created a list of things that the church would either have to affirm or condemn before she even set foot in the church. Now, why that's interesting is because that list looked exactly like her. The church she wanted to go to looked exactly like her. The God she wanted to worship looked exactly like her. She wanted a God who conformed to her image rather than a God who would have her conform to his. But this isn't true just for those outside the church, but also inside the church as well. Listen to this quote by Pastor Tim Keller. He says this, in her novel, Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor says of her character, Hazel Motes, that there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. This is a profound insight. You can avoid Jesus as savior 
by keeping all the moral laws. If you do that, then you have rights. God owes you answered prayers and a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. You don't need a savior who pardons you by free grace for you are your own savior. Religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God, to control him, to put him in a position where they think he owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they are actually rebelling against his authority. So as we can see, hardness of heart comes in many different forms. So let me break this down into a few questions that may indicate some signs of hardness in in your heart. Number one, is it hard for you to think of things that you are sacrificing or giving up because God has asked you to? Is it hard for you to think of things that you are sacrificing or giving up because God has asked you to? If so, could it be that you are dictating your life to God rather than the other way around? Number two, are you easily angered or distraught when things in life don't go the way that you wanted? And more specifically, are you easily upset or annoyed when other people are celebrated for their own achievements or good works rather than you? If so, could it be that you are beginning to think that God owes you for your obedience? Number three, do you avoid or rarely follow the wise counsel of godly friends, mentors, and pastors? Do you avoid or rarely follow the wise counsel of godly friends, mentors, and pastors? If so, could it be that you are actually afraid God might use them to bring changes in your life that are uncomfortable? I'm sure there are many more questions that we could list, but what I want you to see is that this is the oldest distorted desire of the human heart. Just look at the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They ate the forbidden fruit because they wanted to define good and evil. They wanted to be like God. And when God came looking for them, they resisted him and hid. Yes, this, this is us. We are all like Adam and Eve. We are all like the Pharisees. But some of you might be thinking, well, hold on, we're surely not as bad as the Pharisees. After all, they plotted to kill the Son of God. Surely our hearts aren't that hard, right? And I would say that you're certainly right, but... Sin begets sin. Hardness leads to hardness. A little resistance to God always leads to more resistance. And soon, you might become a person you never thought you'd be, or do things you never thought you'd do, or be in a place you never thought you'd be in. Hardness of heart Resistance to God's authority always leads 
to darkness, loneliness, and suffering. Sitting at the table pouting when you could be eating apple crisp. Like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, crossing his arms out in the dark when his family's throwing a party inside. We will trust ourselves straight to hell. And if that sounds harsh, I want you to imagine God removing his common grace from humanity and leaving us to the fertile soil of our own sin, our own desires. Yes, we would certainly be in a place we don't want to be in. And yet, I doubt, once there, we would even be willing to admit it. That's how hard our hearts would be. I had a friend several years ago, was good friends with him in college, called himself a Christian, went to church regularly, was actually a leader in the youth group at his home church. Then I went away to grad school, came back, asked my friend out to lunch and just to catch up, came to find out that he was an atheist. And I said, what? What happened? What happened? And he started to give me all these intellectual reasons why he didn't think God existed. And as we continued to talk and talk about life, came to find out that he had been engaging regularly in sexual sin that eventually led to him committing adultery with someone, sleeping with a woman who was not his wife. And perhaps not coincidentally, around that same time is when he started to not go to church. Because he said he, he felt like people were judging him, he just didn't feel good there. See, hardness of heart will make you an atheist, or at the very least, it will reveal that you've always been an atheist. The Pharisees weren't born plotting murder. They probably became Pharisees with good intentions. But their hearts, their hearts, our hearts are what matter. Jesus says that if you get angry with someone, you've already committed murder in your heart. He says that if you lust over someone, you've already committed adultery in your heart. See, the seeds have already been planted. This is us. God doesn't want to wait for those seeds to grow and for him to cut them off at the surface. He wants to dig it out of the soil. Jesus' work reveals human hearts. What does he find in yours? Here's the reality. Your heart either goes toward healing or hardness. There's no middle way. 
So what do we do? How do we go towards healing? What's the remedy? Do we restrict ourselves with more religion, more rules, more law? No. That would only lead us deeper into Phariseeism. So what's the answer to the heart of man? Seeing the heart of God. Read Mark 3, verse 4 again. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. In saying this, Jesus does two things. First, he answers their bad theology. Flip back to Deuteronomy 30 with me. Remember, we looked at verses 16 through 18 earlier as being sort of the theme verses for the Pharisees. Obey the law. Now look one verse before that at 15 and see if it sounds familiar. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Jesus uses essentially identical language to dispel with the false notion that it was only lawful to save life on the Sabbath, but not lawful to do good. Deuteronomy 30.15 makes no such distinction. Life and good are held together. Doing good is giving life, and giving life is doing good. This is part of God's heart for humanity. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that this reference is a subtle yet powerful invitation to both the Pharisees and to us. Stay in Deuteronomy 30 and look at the very end of that section, starting at verse 19. And I imagine Jesus almost quoting this in his head as he's, as he's engaging with the Pharisees here. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life. He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. What the Pharisees were missing in their theology is that the goal wasn't just to prosper in the land. The goal was to cling to God. He is your life. There is no life apart from him. And here in Mark 3 is the Lord of life, the good shepherd come in the flesh, not just to restore hands, but to restore hearts. We read in Mark 3, 5 that Jesus is both angered and grieved at the Pharisees' hardness of hearts. I love that combination. Jesus is angry because he is good. 
if he didn't get angry over immorality and evil, then he wouldn't be very good, would he? So he upholds this holy standard. And yet, he's so life-giving that he wants all people to experience peace and joy and abundance of life. And so he's saddened when people choose death. The Pharisees chose to continue in their hardness of heart. They chose death, but we don't have to. This story is recorded here so that we might choose life. Jesus is life and goodness. This is the very heart of God that Jesus reveals. Do you love him? Are you holding fast to him? Listen to Isaiah 64, 6. It says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our wrongdoings like the wind take us away. See, all our own desires and puffed up pomp and authority come to nothing. This is the Christian life from start to finish. Surrendering ultimate authority in your life over to Jesus every day. I pray that some of you would make that decision for the first time today. And I pray that the rest of us would pray against hardness of heart and that we would continue to surrender ourselves to Jesus. Soften my heart, God. Soften my heart. Help me to want what you want. Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to go where you want me to go. I want to live where you want me to live. This is, this is the heart that God desires in us. If we surrender to Jesus, he's able to heal us. He's able to give us new hearts. You know, the person in the story that we haven't mentioned much is the man whose hand was healed. He never speaks and there's no record of what happens to him but I imagine he was probably a follower of God since he was at the synagogue. And I imagine he probably had a very real understanding of his own frailty and unfruitfulness. Unable to work, holding on to hope. And I imagine Jesus probably had Isaiah 41:13 in mind when he told the man to stretch out his right hand. For I... The Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not. I am the one who helps you. He says the same thing to you and me when we cling to him with nothing to add of our own merit. Jesus' work reveals God's heart. 
as we prepare to come to the communion table now, I want to remind us that the healing work of Jesus for our hearts came at a great cost. Writing in the 7th century AD, church father Saint Bede said this, Adam plucking the forbidden fruit dried up the hand of the human race. That is, he deprived man of the power to be fruitful in good works. Christ, however, restored that power by stretching forth his hands on the cross. God's heart breaks for us so much. He loves us so much that he was willing to die for us, for our frail, unfruitful, hard hearts. What we do here at the table is a remembrance and a symbol of that. Servers, come forward. If you have put your faith in Christ, we invite you to receive these elements today as a physical reminder that through Christ's atoning sacrifice, we receive newness of life, life with God himself. Even if you believe that for the first time today, we would love for you to, to join us. If you have not made that decision yet, we would ask that you let the elements pass by so that you don't affirm outwardly what you have not committed to inwardly. Come. Come.